You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I'm Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt. Hello, everyone. I'm just going to say we've already messed this up several times, so this will be an interesting episode. (laughs) (laughs) And it's our usual recording time. Normally, when we're out of uh, our our process, that's when we have (laughs) questionable recordings. I know. Not today. Yeah. No. Dead sober and everything. I'm going to (laughs) blame daylight saving time because it messes me up no matter what. Right. Even mm-hmm. though this is the better of the two. It really is the better of the two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will say excitedly that I'm really pumped for this documentary today. Yeah. Part of my childhood, perhaps. If you, it's 80s based, so of course mm-hmm. I'm going to love it. Mm-hmm. You want to tell us what we're doing? Yep. So this week we're going to do Millie Vanilli, which is on Paramount+. Plus. It was done in 2023. It's an hour and 46 minutes long, directed by Luke Corum. So, what do you remember about Millie Vanilli growing up? I remember the music being absolutely huge. Um, I remember being in love with both of them. I was like, oh, they are so pretty. Oh, they are, yeah. And um, I remember the scandal. I remember the, the big letdown. I don't think that I, my whole world was tilted on end or anything, but um, I remember being like, well, that's stupid and not really understanding what it was. Yeah. Right. And you? Um, mine was the same. I was 14, 13, 14 when they came out and love their music, love them because they are beautiful. Just yes, beautiful human beings. And I remember for some reason I was thinking that it came out a different way. Like we'll get to a part of this where like the record skips. And I thought, I thought that was the key thing that they were like, Oh, they weren't singing. It's the end of the world. Oh yeah. But spoiler, it wasn't. So, you know, when we get further on and we find out what really happened, I was like, Oh, that's what happened. It's even worse. It's even fucking worse. Yeah, it was helpful to understand more about the context of it because I was 10-ish, you know what I mean? Like, so it probably makes sense to me that you had probably a little bit more understanding even at that time, what the hell. But yeah, I just remember it being like a scandal and what a shame it was. And honestly, to me, it didn't matter. It didn't <laughs> matter to me like, either. Yeah, I still yeah. listen to the music. I still enjoy the music. It's good music regardless of who performed it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And also I don't remember anyone else as part of that scandal other than Rob and Fab. That's it. They were the only two. Yeah. Which is definitely something that is discussed mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, isn't it funny? Because now to lip sync, like at the Super Bowl, at any kind of concert where there's a lot of dancing, that is what they do well even then i think it was pretty normal right yeah so it's 
it's interesting to see um, the acceptance, I guess, that we have within now. I mean, if you consider the root cause of all of this, you know, we'll yeah. say none of it was them. At the same time, it's funny to, to understand, like, we accept a lot more about the limp-seeking today. Yeah. And also, mm-hmm. as an adult, and I look back, because I honestly haven't thought about it in forever. I mean, I hear sure. a song, the song on the radio, I just sing along. I don't think much about it. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, those crazy cats who, like, <laughs> did this horrible thing. And then as we started going into this and they brought the documentary, I'm like, oh, you look back and you realize I only thought of two people as being the problem. When when you think about it as an adult, even before seeing this, you realize it had to be much bigger and they were just the front people for it. Right. That was such a big problem. Yes. Yeah. They really got thrown under the bus, as we will discuss uh, when we get there. But I do think it's funny when I hear a song, sometimes it doesn't even register like I get excited because I'm like this is quintessential 80s super poppy and I mean I remember the videos I remember not quite all the teeny bopper uh pictures and posters and stuff but definitely the dancing and the biggest of shoulder pads and that's my impression so they weathered it they came out the other side at least musically and they're loved so yeah I don't know not everybody not everybody gets through a scandal like that. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. So let's let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's, let's find out it. what really happened versus what we remember happening and what media told us happened because that's rarely the truth, right? Yeah, yeah. So we start with Fabrice, mm-hmm. and can I just say that he is stunning, and yes, I love him. He is even more attractive now, in my opinion, than he was then. I mean, he was cute. Don't get me wrong. He was attractive. Uh, but I believe he is beautiful now. Beautiful. I think he's always been beautiful mm-hmm. and just a lovely human being, which even makes it better. I know. So, right? That's probably why it adds to it, really. I, I think so as well. So yeah, the whole time I'm like, did I write anything down or did I just <laughs> stare at them <laughs> with... A, an attention that I don't normally get. A little bit of drool on my mouth. Oh, I, I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. Good gravy. Okay. So, like you said, we start in Amsterdam with Fabrice Morvan, who was Fab of the two. The other was Robert Pilatus, who was Rob. So, you have Rob and Fab are the two from Milli Vanilli. Fabrice grew up in Paris. As soon as he turned 18, he moved to Munich. Um, he briefly touches on the fact that he had a fairly abusive childhood. So as soon as he could get out, he got out and he moved to Munich. Did he speak German? No. That's a brave move to move to a country where you don't even speak the language. Like you could have moved to a different city in France. You don't have to stay in Paris. <laughs> Might've been a little bit easier, but he was like, fuck that. Cutting all them ties. But I think Europeans don't have, um, they don't necessarily worry about that kind of stuff because to pick up a language, to speak more than one language is pretty commonplace so i think they're just like i'll figure it out um like they probably found people that um could speak parisian that's not right it's french um (laughs) (laughs) nonetheless um Mm -hmm. yeah not not worried about it at all did he sleep um in a train station uh he sure did until he got a couple gigs as a choreographer as a dancer Mm -hmm. and uh that's what his background was in so i'm like Mm -hmm. i wish that was my story damn I don't know about sleeping in a train station, but yeah, I, I could totally dig movie to another country and being a dancer, but I would, I would throw a hip but it's out. Probably, so. 
a nice train station. Like that's in my mind. Yeah. True. And he talks about how he went to a party one night in Munich. He's invited to a party. He goes and he sees this cat who is also brown. Now, there are very few brown people <laughs> in Germany, period. And apparently, right. they're, they were fairly racist at the time. Seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. As an American, I can understand. I am not racist, but I see the stupid shit all the time. But he sees this cat breakdancing. He's like... Check that shit out. And and it was Rob. And when Rob was done, Rob walks over and is essentially like, oh, no, no, this is my turf. Like, I am the only brown person here. You can't be here because I'm a novelty. And if there's two, <laughs> no longer a novelty. Right. Right. But again, I say to you, they're stunning. So I think they're going to win people over. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm hmm. You guys, seeing some of these pictures of when they were, like, really little, they weren't little. They were, like, 18, 20 years old, and they had, like, the curly hair, and it was just, it made me so happy to see these pictures of them young and happy and carefree. Yeah. It was so fun to see them, um, Mm -hmm. just in all aspects, and the whole chronology of it, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, it was just, it was lovely. And the clothes, and it was just so much fun. I can't Mm -hmm. even talk about it. Yeah. Right. They become best friends, which is lovely because you have Fab who's a little socially awkward because he doesn't really know the language yet. He's learning it. Mm -hmm. And you have Rob who is just gregarious as fuck, apparently. And he's like, (laughs) let's go. Let's do this. Right. And they do bond a little bit over that traumatic childhood because Rob was um, a kid in an orphanage. He was Mm -hmm. adopted, but even that wasn't a great situation. Mm -hmm. And we hear a little bit from his sister, Carmen, Mm -hmm. about what they experienced together and sort of her perspective throughout the documentary, which was really nice to have that history Mm -hmm. uh, for him because, I mean, cat out of the bag, he's not going to be able to tell us himself. Although there's lots of recordings of him discussing different things, which was nice that they included. But um, yeah, he just didn't have it easy. So yeah, yeah, people would say horrible things to it. And I look at people who say stuff like that to little kids, just because they're brown, gives you the right to say horrible things. These are just little kids. You can't say that to anybody. You shouldn't say it to anybody. But mm-hmm. let them grow up and, and be a little bit carefree at first, for fuck's sake. I just, I hate people. (laughs) I know it is really difficult and I want to say that we've evolved, but I don't know that I can back that up. I, I, in my heart, I wish that that was the case, but um, I think we're still struggling with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So they both had horrible childhoods. So they're both kind of looking for family and they became each other's family, which Mm -hmm. I think is lovely. And that's, I think family can be definitely chosen. Sure. And this seemed to work for them. They moved in together. They had music playing all the time and they were both dancers. They decided to start throwing parties where they could, you know, play music and they would have DJs and they would dance and they would kind of put on these little shows and shit. And that was amazing. Those parties looked amazing. Yeah, they did. And they gained they gained a little bit of local fame, right? And it kind of launched mm-hmm. them into a little bit bigger venue uh perhaps is the Mm -hmm. way we'll say that and they were able to get some work as background dancers Mm -hmm. and they have some footage of that which is like (laughs) so much fun to watch again not because they're in tight pants okay Mm -mm. the artistry Mm -hmm. 
of the work they're doing, I'm much in appreciation <laughs> of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Is that a singlet Absolutely. you're wearing? In no other time in history would that have been appropriate. So right. all good. Yeah. They reminded me of the Fly Girls kind of background oh, dancing yeah, like that, that's right? A really good, that's a really good um, comparison. Yeah. They were models and just kind of like, not like Vogue, but they did a lot of advertising modeling kind of thing, which was, was I'm sure, still decent money. They did some gigs singing and I don't know that they played instruments, but singing and dancing at clubs and that. Mm-hmm. So they thought they had a pretty good jam going, mm-hmm. right? Well, they even had a band, right? Mm-hmm. Empire Bazaar. <laughs> That's right. They put out an album. Oh, it's glorious. I might have to see if I can find uh, some of that out in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as they're promoting themselves and whatnot, they get hit up by someone who's like, hey, hey, you guys are pretty awesome. I need to hook you up with this cat, Frank Farian, who's a producer. Who else has Frank Farian produced? Bonnie M. Who I've never I think heard it's of. Bonnie M. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, I didn't put the axle in my notes. <laughs> so this is Disco. Which, again, and they, are, you might have heard of Ra Ra Rasputin. <laughs> Nothing if you like had, a where have you been? disco song <laughs> about a historical <laughs> figure. Evil priest. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Evil priest. Love that. So yeah. I think that they were excited because, you know, when you're getting your start and somebody notices you, that's what you're hoping for, right? Like that's the vault to get you to stardom. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved that. Right. So these cats go to Frankfurt to meet Frank and they meet his secretary, Ingrid, because she's, she saw them. She's like, Oh my God, these, these cats are amazing. Mm-hmm. Look at them. They can, they can dance and everything. But then they realize that, they're not really what they're looking for vocally. And I think the biggest problem is because they don't speak English very well, which makes it difficult to sing English songs cohesively. Right. They specifically call out that they had pretty heavy accents and that wasn't Mm -hmm. really going to work for them. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't really part of a discussion with the guys. They just were kind of hustled through contract signing and... Being a baby, like they were, they're not going to like really go over that fine print too much. So causes problems later, uh, but they are in lock, stock and barrel, as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, they're going to sign it. They're going to take, it was like decent money being offered. And this is a stepping stone, right? Get that. We do get to talk to Ingrid Siegith, who was Frank's assistant, um, apparently the name Millie Vanilli was because of her. They, her nickname was Millie and she happened to be Frank's girlfriend. Okay. No explanation of where Vanilli came from. And they were just running through the alphabet and they're like, Vanilli. <laughs> the, the name game and it sure, popped up. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to start for her, she, she comes off in a strange way to me. Mm. Not likable actually is sort of my impression. I was like, ew. (laughs) Yeah. There's hope for her yet. But yeah. So Mm -hmm. again, they've never seen anybody like these two. It's really a draw for them. So 
I think this is a great example of your looks maybe working against you a little bit. So she specifically talks about Rob and his green eyes, which are dreamy. I will give you that. But they're such good dancers, Aaron, that it doesn't matter that they can't sing a note that the English world is going to appreciate. Listen, those hip thrusts will take anyone out of the out of the realm of reality that they care about what's being sang, right? They don't care. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Am I correct to say that Rob is wearing some sports bras in this thing? Like there are a lot of pictures taken of like a low cut half shirt situation. And I'm like, that's what I would call a sports bra. He I think awesome he probably just modified tank tops or something <laughs> like that, right? Because it was the time when half shirts, crop tops were big and in and yeah. I mean, he had pecs and abs. Yes, he mm-hmm. did. Yeah. He filled it out great. No problems. Yes, indeed. So they sign this contract and then they go back to Munich and they wait and they don't hear anything for a little mm-hmm. while, right? And they're like, right. hmm, what's going on? But they are getting paid. So sweet. I mean, yeah. I think that's the best situation, right? To get paid for nothing right there. <laughs> I know. I've been working on that my whole life uh, to get that to come to fruition. <laughs> I just had the look. Right. But they eventually get the call and they come in and mm-hmm. they hear the track for a girl, you know, it's true. And right. a jam of all jams, right? Mm-hmm. They must have been on cloud nine. Except for they won't be laying down vocals for this. No, no, they won't. And there seems to be some discrepancy in the rest of the story because the way Ingrid tells it, she's like, Psh, they didn't care. It was fine. They, they couldn't, they were pleased not be singing almost. That's not quite what she says, but mm-hmm. according to Fab, he said that Rob was really pissed and they were arguing and there was a lot of like fast German talk that he couldn't keep up with. And then finally Rob just gave in because what do you do? They're mm-hmm. on contract. So. Right. Who's to say which way it was? Probably a little bit of both is is honest. So I don't know. Right. What I find interesting is Fabrice said they were essentially threatened. They're like, listen, you, you can either do this or you can walk away, but you would have to pay us back the advance and everything we've been paying you these six months or so that you've been waiting. Mm-hmm. And my thought process was, I don't think that would be it because they knew the scheme at this point. Are they just going to let them walk out knowing that when they hear this song on the radio person singing isn't going to be the person up front they already knew the scheme at this point right they're yeah uh, uh, whatever the word is that they're that <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> they're ensconced. yeah it's yeah. yeah it's interesting because the 80s were a time of excess so i'm pretty sure that if you had no other job you would not be able to pay back so again they they were funneled into this decision this wasn't like a free will situation and i think it's funny that from ingrid's point of view it's sort of like it was and from you know fabrice's point of view it wasn't so again i say to you the power holder in this situation is not our two artist friends it's right. the man frank Perry. Mm-hmm. yeah so and let's Let's comment real quick that this is not the first time he's done that because Boney M was the same situation. That lead singer was not a singer. He was a dancer. And so they put him out there with recorded tracks and they marketed it and they made a lot of money off of it. So this is his shtick. This is what Frank does. And he predominantly does it to brown and black people because 
I think it's easier for him to one, sell that look internationally because they look exotic or whatever, Mm -hmm. but two, also take full advantage of them because he knows that he, as the white man is going to be the one who's in power, who has control is forgiven, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty good scam he's got going on and he makes a lot of money on it. So I think the problem was that they just got too big overall. Like he was not expecting this to be of right. the juggernaut again, the Taylor Swift of their day. I was trying to think of a good <laughs> comparison, right? Because later they get into some figures of how popular this music was. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's difficult to draw that parallel, but they were like enormous. They were so big. Right. And part of that was for the vocal team that they put together in the background. So that's Brad Howell. He's doing a lot of the the vocals. He's, Lead. Yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. Um, there's also Charles Shaw, who was a good rapper. <laughs> and I just, I'm like, what is a good, good rapper? Can talk real fast. Instilling a lot of street cred for Mr. Shaw. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> So maybe the documentarian should have given him a better title. Like right. he's like a sick rapper or something like That's that. That's right. His ill. God, <laughs> I'm sorry. But he did get a chunk of change to keep his mouth shut about it. And again, he is also a young up and comer and he's going to be like, sounds great. Nobody's going to question this. Right. Now that was Charles, but I'll say Brad, I believe was more of a session artist Okay, and You'd probably hear his vocals on a shit ton of records <laughs> throughout the 80s, right? He had amazing vocals, yeah. but he seemed pretty chill with being like, whatever, just let me sing. I'll mm-hmm. take my money and go. Right. And I can imagine that a lot of people probably don't want the fame of it. Like, okay, adjust for inflation, but pay me and I'll sing and stay quiet. I don't give a shit. I don't want to be out up front. I don't want that. So I could understand why some people would be okay with it. Right. I think, again, maybe feelings change towards the end for some of these people. Right. So Charles was up and coming. He was Mm -hmm. like he thought he was contributing to something he would be part of, not pushed aside. And then they're like, well, shut your hole and don't tell anyone. He's like, "Eh." you know what I mean? Right. Be a good rapper. Okay. And just Just be quiet. Not great. Yeah. (laughs) We also talked to Linda and Jody Rocco, who are twins and they are so much fun. And it was really funny because I think it was Jody was like, is this going to be another thing where it's like, ooh, 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 I love you. And then it was literally exactly that. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> and she was mad at her sister. And the sister's like, can you just shut it for just one minute? Like, it's work. Don't worry about it. So <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, I love that. That Jody was like, I don't want to do it. And Linda's like, just, just do it. Yeah, they were the background singers. Mm-hmm. They were the ooh, 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 I love you girls, if you will. So let's talk about the fact that they only recorded one song, right? So Girl, You Know It's True was released in 1988 and it pretty quickly moved up the charts. And the only people who knew were the people who were involved in the original singing and like Frank and Ingrid. Right. So we talked to Thomas Stein from Ariola Records. They they helped with distribution of the records. They didn't know. They just heard the song and saw a picture of these two cats and they were like, all right, it works. Can we talk about the fact that their name is Ariola Records? <laughs> I'm starting to be grown up about this, no. Aaron. 
look who you're talking to, please. I'm like, that was a choice. Anyway, agreed. So in June of 88, they're on this show called Formula One and they make it to number 17. Although Fabrice calls it something like way more lovely. It's the formula and then whatever the German word for one is. And I was like, oh, that's really cute. So it it tops the charts. It's a hit in Germany. And so Frank decides to increase the marketing and the level of teeny bopper magazines and pictures and stuff like that of our friends is Mm -hmm. amazing. So many shirtless pictures. (laughs) One of them naked in a bathtub where they're covering their genitals. And I thought, I hope that wasn't a teen bop. Oh my God. Well, it's European and it's very tastefully done. So Mm. yeah. Yeah. Two (laughs) naked men in a bathtub. Right. It's fine. Don't ask any questions. It's all good. It's It's all good. Art. It is art. art. It's yeah, that's right. (laughs) So they make it to number one. Like you said, they were in the top five in 23 countries. They start going into the US. It blows up. Their look blows up because they have this really kind of unique look for the time. It's a little over the top. If you look at it now, like you said, the shoulder pads were so much. <laughs> right. But at this point, they're on MTV. So uh, downtown Julie Brown is uh, makes some comments on this, which is really fun. And they talked to Timbaland and he's saying like, look, uh, for a couple of brown guys to make it into pop music with the dreads and stuff was like a huge deal. And I, I'm glad that he points that out. Cause I, I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess pop has, I mean, mostly been dominated by white folks or I would say uh, brown ladies. I don't know that dudes really well, Michael Jackson, his... but he doesn't have dreads, right? He was the king of pop, if you will. That's what they say. Look, <laughs> I love Billie Jean. So what can I say? Oh, I love Michael Jackson right. music. I love it. Catchy as hell. Mm-hmm. But Frank realizes he needs an album, right? So this is one song and it took off. So now they need a whole album and he brings people back into the studio, except for Charles, who apparently his manager had leaked that he was the one singing on it. And so he's kicked to the door, right? Kicked That's to right. the curb even. I'm just making up my own fucking shit now. <laughs> Which would give him street cred because now he's got something to be angry about. And I associate (laughs) rap with being like, you know, pissed off at the man. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. As far as our, our friends, uh, Rob and Fab, they've embraced it, right? They're getting some taste of fame. They're living the life that they always envisioned for themselves. And so Mm -hmm. I think they're enjoying the ride and not necessarily questioning stuff at this point. Listen, we don't ask how the meat's made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I love how Frank has it set up. So like the session singers would come in, like the background singers would come in and they're like, Hey, when are Robin Fab going to come? This is Linda and Jody. And they're like, when is Robin Fab coming? And he's like, Oh, totally after eight. It's fine. You got to go. You got to go. And then he would hustle up the other artists. Now he brought in John Davis to do the rapping. I don't know if he was good. Great. Mediocre. I mean, I don't have to call it out. So I I think that he was pretty awesome. (laughs) I wonder, do you think people thought what well, they must be vampires because they're only brought in after everybody else leaves? And maybe that's how they were so beautiful. It, it's possible. They do release a second album in Europe, but it's it's not too good. It's not too good. It's not up to snuff. And uh, 
Clive Davis wants to sign them with Arista Records because, you know, they're big hits. And so he he signs them and they hear the second record like this. This won't fly. That's right. We can't have this. Um, we got to cash in now while they're hot. Yeah. But I mean, Clive is known as a hit maker, right? So people are going to listen to what he has to say because he works with the Dolly Parton and she's delightful. So he works with everyone, I think. Yeah. Yes, he does. But I just like that he works with Dolly Parton because she's endured yeah. and yeah, people love her. So yeah, I love her too. He gets Diane Warren, who's a songwriter. She wrote Blame It on the Rain and was like bringing it to Clive to give him as a song. And he's like, well, we have these two cats. And she's like, this is perfect as a follow up for Girl, You Know It's True, right? It, it's a really good transition. So there's the first one on the album. They give the songs to Frank. Frank then records them in secret, as it were, which they all think is weird, but it's the his weird artist process. So they don't fuck with it and they get their music and everyone's happy. I think it's interesting in this because they have representation for Marissa and you know what I mean? Like, I think that was a, a bold move on the company's mm -hmm. part to supply somebody to speak because they don't come out looking real good now at the time they really were like mm, plausible deniability or whatever. But I think some folks along the way have shown eh, eh, maybe, maybe not. So um, those guys are Ken Mitchell and Richard. That's what I have. Yeah. I just had a bunch of old white men from Arista <laughs> Records. A hundred percent. But I do like the fact that they were like, look, we just sent, uh, we sent stuff to Frank. He did his Frank business and we received a package back with the final product and we didn't ask. They didn't tell. And so we were all cool with that. And, it, and then finally you find out, except for it's listed. It's listed in the well, credits. On the European version. Mm -hmm. So the album they put out that wasn't good enough to be released in the U.S. before it was remastered with new and improved songs, if you will. Yeah, they, Rob and Fab were not listed anywhere on the credits. Like, at all. I'm like, well, they were honest, at least. And the credits were uh, correct as far as the documentary has shown to us, right? So Linda mm -hmm. and Jody and Brad and john or charles depending on what you're looking at mm -hmm. so the credits were correct as far as the mm -hmm. actual recording artists were concerned it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. so it's not like there were a bunch of fuck-ups and that could be blamed you know on some kind of like office snafu um not the case right they weren't fraudulent on that right they listed them all as background singers but they were all listed as artists and singers and they did not list Rob and Fab. So when presented with this information and shown the picture, the Arista guys are like, oh, we didn't release that. And they're like, yeah, we know, but shouldn't that have been a clue if the two guys on the front cover are not listed anywhere in the credits? And they're like, yeah, yeah probably, probably should have been a red flag. <laughs> yes. But they also say we received a list of credits from the producer we really didn't have reason to question this. So again, that plausible deniability does exist. But I think that as we go, people who are in the know are kind of showing like some minion somewhere would have read this and it was a big enough deal that they would have reported it to the bosses. So it is a, a little bit unbelievable that they didn't know that their giant artist money-making cash cow was false so it's just an interesting dynamic 
So on that record, they had three number one hits, which is pretty rare. Usually you have one hit and then people buy the whole record because kids back then you had to buy the whole thing to get one song. And then you were disappointed by the rest of the record. (laughs) That happened a lot. (laughs) Or if you were like me, you were cheap or whatever you want to call it. And I, I lived and died by trying to get the whole song as I wanted it on my cassette that I was trying to tape. Mm -hmm. And then I could play it back uh, to my leisure. So. Yes, but the problem is, is a lot of times the DJ would talk over it and it'd piss me off. 100%. So. You really had to be dedicated to get mm-hmm. your playlist, as well, your mixtape <laughs> as you your wanted mixtape. it. So, yeah. anyway. So the hits were Blame It on the Rain, which is a number one hit in 1989. Don't Forget My Number and Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You. Which is the only That's... one they didn't really play any snippets of, which made me sad. Mm-hmm. I would have to hear it. I kind of, I kind of forgot it. I'd have to hear it again. It's delightful. I'm sure they are. They're mm-hmm. all delightful. They had great artists. They had great musicians. They mm-hmm. had great songwriters. They had everything. They had great front people to make it look pretty. So they had a full package. It's good music. Yeah. So now that it ex- has exploded, the new album is out. They have all these number one hits. They need to go to America. And Frank is really not happy with that. <laughs> Right, because the cat's going to get out of the bag here. Mm-hmm. They are, again, barely speaking English when they first roll over here. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty apparent to people that there's something up. Yeah. I will say, though, is phonetic singing not a known thing at this time? I think, and I was thinking about that, too, because even people with, like, stutters can sing without a stutter, right? And a lot of people who are British, you don't hear their accent. So the singing part, I don't think, is as much as a concern as the rapping part. I think it'd be real hard to rap if you could barely speak the language, right? You couldn't pronounce the words correctly. Yeah, but you could practice. And I would think with maybe, like, a vocal coach or something, it could be done, I think we mm-hmm. have had instances of phonetic singing. I think K-pop is one um, nowadays right. we would recognize maybe for that. I don't have a specific instance, but I believe that that's a thing. And I thought Roxette had done it, but I could not confirm that when I went to look around on the interwebs. So I want to say, and I could be making this up and Arnold Schwarzenegger can come for me, but I wanted to say one of his first movies, he had to memorize the English words in the script because he wasn't very good at English. And so he kind of just memorized that part of the script without really knowing what it said. He probably had someone translate it for him so he understood sure. it. But you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's how he got through his first movie or so. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to tell me that he had an album that I'd missed. And I was like, <laughs> what? I mean, because we there are many instances of actors that have yes. made the leap, right? So Eddie Murphy's classic. Um, Don Johnson. Don Johnson. Had, yeah. I mean, so there are those that exist out there. And I was like, Arnold had a record? But that was just my brain. Sorry about that. I would rank it up there with the Shatner. I would absolutely buy it. (laughs) Oh, that makes me so happy. Okay. But they do get good representation, right? So, of course, we talked about, um, you know, who they're working with as far as a record studio. They also have Sandy Galen, who's their manager, also with the stars. Actually, I lied to you. He might be the one that's working with Dolly Parton, so... There's a cat named Todd Headley, who's the assistant manager uh, for Sandy. So I think he takes maybe some of the less big names when they roll in the door. But, you know, joke's on you, Sandy, because these these cats blew up. 
Can I say I'm glad that you said his name because even though I have it spelled correctly, I had Heedle in my head. I would have called him Todd Heedle. <laughs> Between the two Sorry, of us, Don. we can probably get it out correctly. Um was Sorry, already Don. butchered a couple of things, but I didn't want to go back and fix them. So then there's also, well, let's say this. So when they're working with Todd, they get put on an MTV tour. Club MTV Live is the name of the tour, which I think is important. And then we start to talk to some of the the band members, the cast people um, that are on stage with them and what a strange experience they had because they're practicing and they're rehearsing and they're trying to get a tight show together as you do when you're professional. But Rob and Fab do not appear. And he's like all impressed. He's like, oh, they must be really good. They don't even have to rehearse. <laughs> and that is some serious street cred. And I love that for them. I love that that's where he went. Not like, where are these motherfuckers? He's like, God damn, they must be good, right? Right. Like, he's worked with enough artists that he just assumes the best. And these guys have already blown up in such a way. They do show him. This is Keith Yoni. He was the bass player and kind of the band leader, as it were. They do tell him at some point, they're like, oh, no, no, we have this track for them. He's like, oh, that's the kind of band they are. Okay. But again, it doesn't scream fraudulent at that point because as you've mentioned we we've done that quite a bit there have been a lot of shows and a lot of things where that's the norm to use a track especially with the show that's so physical like they are jumping and running and so much running man i just (laughs) and the roger rabbit oh so much i don't know that that's correct but in my heart it is (laughs) but again how are you supposed to breathe like if you're performing vocally, that's a lot of like deep breathing and like all that kind of stuff. And you're out there doing all kinds of crazy dancing. Those do not live together in the same place in my world. So it's, it's interesting to think about that. Yeah. I know a couple people do it. I know people like Pink, she trained specifically so she could do the acrobatics while she sings like upside down and, and doing that. And Good for her because it's taken a while to, you know, it took her a lot of training to get to that point. I would think, yeah. Lizzo's another one that she's on the uh, on the stage. She's dancing, singing, and playing the flute, which you have to have so much breath control to play the flute at the level that she plays. It's crazy. So, yes, there are some people that do it, but it is pretty rare with that kind of an active show that you would perform live. Yeah, And I, I wonder if... You know, because this is a a show that there are so many acts, like, it's hard to kind of finesse out all of those pieces if you're um, an individual performer on a tour of your own and maybe you have, like, a headline, Mm -hmm. like, you're the headliner is what I'm trying to say. Maybe you have a little bit more creative control to do those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But again, these cats are just starting out-ish, right? They're probably, like, six months to a year in. So the date's July 21st, 1989. The show is in Bristol, Connecticut. Julie Brown introduces them. She goes back to her trailer, not thinking much of it. There are a few, you know, few shows, a few weeks, whatever, into this tour. And then we hear, we, we don't. Then she hears the crowd start to get kind of anxious or an uproar or whatever's going on. She comes out and Rob is like running out to her, kind of freaking out and it, Turns out the vocal track being played was skipping. It was stuck on a loop just over and over saying, girl, you know, it's girl, you know, it's girl, you know. And that's 
in my head sometimes when I'm doing something and I know I'm doing the same thing over and over for some reason that's always been in my head and now <laughs> I feel kind of bad. <laughs> right. And they, they don't know how to fix this. I mean, you know, so they, I think have a truly a freak out moment. So he comes running to right. her to find out what, you know, how do we resolve this? And I don't right. know that I captured how it was resolved. It really wasn't. So okay. Because it wasn't completely unheard of at the time, they were just like, eh, we'll just play it off and act like it didn't happen. And they continued to tour. They continued to do press. Now, that's what I thought was what tripped them up. And that was their downfall. Mm -hmm. I remember the track skipping and it becoming a big deal. And I thought that's when they're like, oh, they're not singing. And it went from there. So Mm -hmm. that's not the case. They continued to tour. They continued to, like I said, talk to people. But that's when I think people started questioning it more like, why were they using a track? Why were they? And I think they probably could have come up with a good story. Like, listen, do you want us to dance or do you want us to sing? Probably right. not going to do both. And they were showmen. They put on a really good show. Agreed. Um, I think at this point, so people are hearing them speak during interviews. And that's another mark in the column of what's going on here. They had the skipping or looping track of one of their concerts. I think the pressure is building on these two guys into, you know, as a, as a group that they're enjoying the fame, but they're also feeling a lot of pressure for uh, the secrets that they're carrying. And I think that that's really wearing on them because while they love being adored, especially Rob, I think is in this boat to know that you have to lie to get it is not Mm -hmm. very affirming. Right. So to be loved for yourself, I think is something that we all strive for and yeah, it's kind of an interesting problem for them. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to mention that Charles does try to explain that he was the singer because he sees people getting gold records and he's frustrated. So he does interviews. And of course, Frank is like, nah, that's not true. Just look how he's dressed. He clearly is just trying to make money. You can't trust this black guy over here essentially is what he said. Right. And you mentioned gold records. And let's say, give the youth out here a little taste of what we're talking about. So their debut album sold 8 million copies, like right out the door. And that's among the biggest debuts ever, right? Biggest Um, debuts. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, they were six times platinum here in the States. And they ended up selling like 40 million records or some crazy ass number like that yeah yeah. and so that's why i was again trying to say who would that be like now so yeah it's hard to relate it to now because now they go by download so Mm -hmm. artists used to make a lot of money on on sales of records now the only way artists make money are by touring or merchandise Mm -hmm. and things like that because they don't get paid for streaming which is fucking stupid we need to change the system guys anyway so it really is hard to to make it connect to someone currently right i'm trying Mm -hmm. to think of someone who came out of the gate and just blew it away we also have a lot more options now so that's something i've talked to people about before like if you think of the 60s it was like hippie music and the 70s was disco and the 80s was kind of a i don't know weird pop stuff so 90s was grunge when you get to the 2000s what do you have murder folk Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of, a lot more choices. Right. It's not just right? the radio. Yes. You yeah. are not stuck listening to whatever they want to feed you. You can listen to whatever you want. And so 
back then, if it's on the radio, that's what you heard. There was nothing else. You could change it to a different station, but odds are five stations are playing the same set list over and over and over again. Right. And there's going to be a little variation, right? So you're going to have like a hard rock or a rock, and then you're going to have maybe country, and that's probably pretty standard affair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know that it's comparable to now, but it is a lot, guys. It, I mean, Taylor Swift is probably a good comparator, right? Obviously, she has a lot more duration. She's been around for a long time, and she's clearly nothing like them. She writes, she sings, and everything. But as right. far as popularity-wise, yeah, they exploded. Right. Yeah. Right. Agreed. You know, Charles was upset that no one believed him, but no one wanted to believe that. They they loved this band, so they didn't want to believe it, right? And it was it was going big. They were blowing up and it was, they probably could have gotten away with it for a lot longer if it wasn't for those crazy kids who put them in for a Grammy. Right. That's kind of what started their downfall. Which is amazing because it's Todd that calls the, well, actually he ends up talking to the guy that's the head of the Grammys who works for Naris, but I didn't, I don't know exactly what all that means. Um, so we're not going to talk about it. So it's Michael Green, head of the Grammys. <laughs> And Todd's like, so um, I'm like an assistant manager. How does one get your act nominated for a Grammy? And they're like, well, you just send a request in on your letterhead, yada, yada, yada. And Todd's like, awesome sauce. Now, everybody else around the group, I think, knew that they had the fame to be nominated. But since everybody kind of knew what the story was, it was accepted that they would not be because that would be a disaster. So because Todd was not let in on the scandal or whatever you want to call it, he, he wasn't in the know about this group in particular. He kind of um, led us up to the cliff <laughs> before the tumble. Right. So, right. He submits them and then the ballot comes out and they're on the ballot. And of course, Clive is like pissed. He's pissed. And, Bless Todd's sweet baby heart. He's like, why doesn't anyone want these guys to get a Grammy? Right. (laughs) It's It's so cute. So they end up getting nominated for Best New Artist. Now, listen to Mm -hmm. some other people that were in this category. Can I say that listening to the people who were nominated, that's what took me back. More than anything was listening to this group of music. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Right. So Nina Cherry, Mm -hmm. Soul to Soul. Tone mm-hmm. Loke mm-hmm. and Indigo Girls. And the way they're presented in the documentary is really cool. Like Indigo Girls with this like kitschy folk group. Tone Loke did a lot of really interesting things uh, with rhythm and things like that, that changed the landscape after. And so, so these are not mm-hmm. um, like Nina Cherry's album was revolutionary. Soul to Soul changed a bunch of stuff. So it's so interesting to think, that these were really influential people. This was not like a shit year for new artists. Right. Right. (laughs) Really what I thought was interesting. So. Right. And I love the fact that the song that the Indigo girls was popular for at the time was the one that just became popular again. Thanks to Barbie. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So they go and we get to see very young, like Ozzy Osbourne, Flava Flav, Paul McCartney. (laughs) I don't know if he De was super young, but nonetheless, we're Mr. Sir Paul. In McCartney. comparison, yeah. it's yeah. like 33 years ago. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So they end up performing live. And even that is interesting because they're able to put their backup track in because the powers that be that were backing Millie Vanilli grease the wheels 
to get them to be able to do that. So that was not done at the time. So that was even a giant hurdle because you didn't, you always perform live at the Grammys. At the Grammys you did. Yes, yeah. So they, the they had people pay a lot of money so they could sing to a backup. Yes. So it worked. They did a great job from what I could tell. They did. But if you look at the faces of the artists, they knew. <laughs> they knew. <laughs> oh, my God. They were less than impressed. Right. Would you like to talk, tell us about how it goes at the Grammys for our friends, Robin Fab? Well, they won. And when Fab is asked now if he thinks they deserve the Grammy, he said, well, we didn't sing on the record. So no. But for all the stress, anxiety, and the weight we had to carry to keep this secret and keep this charade going, yes, a little tiny bit. We kind of did a little, little tiny bit. But even I think they deserve a nod for the performance that they did. You know, it's not just like one track they laid down. You know, I mean, they were the salesmen, right? They were the show, the showman for this kind of act. And there were so many people behind them. So I I think it's a good argument to say it's debatable. You know, it's not yeah. just a cut and dry thing. So interesting. I had forgotten right. that they won. I didn't realize that. I had to. Yeah. I had to. Yeah. I understand why the answer would be no, because it's about music. Yes. Not the performance. Grammys are about the music. So they had won other awards leading up to this, like mm -hmm. American Music Awards and things like that. And that's a little more performative. And I get mm -hmm. that. The Grammys is strictly supposed to be about the music. And so... Yeah, in that instance, I'm thinking maybe not. Let's put a pin in that statement. We'll come back to it. So I think they kind of shoot themselves in the foot at the after party for the Grammys because they um, have been bitten by the fame monster and they're kind of dicks to people. Now, Fab says they were high as fucking kites because that was the 80s. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, you're right. Everyone's sober now. You're right. You're absolutely. I mean, <laughs> are we past the time where they're giving pop stars drugs like by your studio? I don't know, but that had been a thing at one point. Yeah. I don't know that they were cutting lines on the table in front of cameras anymore, <laughs> but they probably were then. I do absolutely love the fact, though, that they show in the documentary several printed interviews where these two are like, we're better than the Beatles. We're better than the Stones. Like, and I'm like, maybe not just better, more talented. Right. And I'm like, mm. maybe maybe walk that back a little bit. Now they do say that they're better than Elvis. And I'm like, oh, fine. I'm not gonna argue on that because I'm not a giant Elvis <laughs> fan. But the stones, they, they think they're better than my stones. That's what they lost you in them. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I all I could think of was when John Lennon said that they were more popular than Jesus, the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And there was huge flack. But in I don't think he lied. I mean, I think at the time he was more popular than Jesus, or at least the Beatles in general were. So in this case, I think they, they inflated it a little bit. They sure did. They sure did. But again, they're like 20 years old. I mean, 22 at most. Yeah. I think, I think Fab was 21 and Rob was 24 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So again, yeah. I say that this is not surprising to me at all that they mm -hmm. were just full of themselves as young people tend to be. Um, yeah. Right. They're getting more famous. Their writers are getting bigger and bigger, but they want to sing on the next album. They don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Or they want out. And unfortunately the contract says they have multiple albums to do. Mm -hmm. 
So they're, they think, well, we're just going to make life so bad for Frank that he cuts us free. Sure. Right. They show up, they don't show up to videos, like to, to make a video for the new song. They ask for more money for everything. And finally, Frank is like, fuck them punk asses. I'm not going to let them blackmail me. I'm going to out them. Yeah. So he does. He talks to the Associated Press mm-hmm. that they did not sing on the album or in the single. So, and he plays it off so nonchalant and it's, oh my God, devastating. Like, I think this is a great example of if you can spin the story, that's what people remember. That's what people will run with. Nobody asks a fucking question about any of this. They just completely pounced on Rob and Fab. Yeah, he was just so arrogant. Like, well, you know what? They had this beautiful look, but they couldn't really sing, but I still wanted to use them. So here are the singers. Like, he came with the actual singers for the album. Mm -hmm. And I use that term lightly because it wasn't all the singers. Anyway, and yeah, you know, they didn't sing at all. And, you know, do with me what you will. And then he just kind of laughs it off. Oh, so upsetting. Right. But the fallout that comes downstream for... Rob and Fab is um, of nightmare proportion. Um, number one, they have to give back their Grammy, mm-hmm. which is the only time in history that that's ever happened, which again is surprising. Mm-hmm. I get it, but still it's just so painful. They held a press conference, right? Cause they want to get their side of the story out as well. They laid in a dollar shore, but here we are. And Rob essentially tells them, listen, we were living in the slums. We were trying to do better. We were trying to make it. And someone gave us an opportunity and we took it. We didn't really necessarily understand the implications of it initially, Mm -hmm. but we took it. We took the money. We got invested in it. And here we are. And, And the press was like, oh, sweet. Thanks for telling us that. Right. That's how they reacted. Absolutely not. They were vicious. They were horrible. They made him sing. And that wasn't great. But it is, it is very hard to watch that for me. And it really happened. <laughs> like it wasn't scripted. It's yeah. Ugh. And it's horrible. I mean, they're especially, they're essentially like, um, how did you lie to these sweet baby fans faces? How could you do that to them? You're horrible. You're horrible. I mean, they called them everything, but black. And they were, they were just so and never once did they say anything about anyone else involved. It was these two people were the, they were going to take the fall for all of it. And even, even Rob pointed out, he's like, why are you coming after us two little people as part of this? There's this, the bigger problem. Why are you coming after us two people from the slums? Right. Didn't sway anyone though. They were demonized. Mm-mm. They were vilified. Yeah, I find it fascinating that there's discussion of people suing them. Um, there's like a mom yes. that's like, I bought your album for my kid and you're not a hero like I thought you are, which I think is a total American thing that we only see people in one facet and they can't be a mixture of good and bad qualities. Like we just expect you to be an American hero and that's it. I think in European, they're a little bit cooler about that kind of stuff. You mm-hmm. can be a world leader and have a mistress. I mean, like, it's fine. Uh, but them. here we can't do that. So Mm-mm. I think that was part of the problem. And also, ma'am, it was like four fucking dollars. Suck it up. <laughs> Calm down. I do love that her 
that the way she presents it is like my little Joey, like what kind of life is he going to have knowing, <laughs> now knowing that you guys lied about blaming on the rain. And I'm like, what? But, but look how far <laughs> we've come where our last president prided himself on being able to cheat people and like evade taxes and shit. Like that was a point of pride for him. So we've come so far as a country. <sighs> anyway. Sorry. Clive came out and said they had no idea. Oh, he would never. It was pearl clutching of the highest order. <laughs> it really was. I mean, and we could talk all day about why we think that this happened. Um, I think the truth is that our public facing talent were brown. And that made it very easy because a lot of this slid off a bunch of the white people. And that's fucking irritating. So. Right. It, it just gets more annoying, guys, because Frank, who already had the second record recorded, decided to put it out as the real Millie Vanilli with the, quote, real artists on the cover and singing. Was it the real artist, Erin? No, not according to Linda and Jody, who said there's a guy in the video who never had anything to do with anything at all. And there's a girl that's credited with singing um, also in the video, but didn't have anything to do with the first album. So um, this is another frank farian special where he's like look i need these people to look a certain way and you actual background singers do not fit the bill so i'm going to continue to perpetuate this bullshit yeah right and what i love is probably the fact that he came clean about something happening and it was horrible and so no one would suspect he would do it again because they'd be like oh he, <laughs> he learned his lesson right I think one of my favorite parts is the guy that I think Linda is talking about that was in the video and is shown singing, like does an interview and he's like talking shit about Robin Fab. And I'm like, motherfucker, yeah. you didn't sing on this either, but he <laughs> can speak English in a way that's going to mm -hmm. appeal to the English speaking world. Right. So those mm -hmm. of us in the States, it's a little bit more palatable. And so nobody ever questions that. Until me at yeah. this documentary, um, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Rob and Fab tried to come back with their own voices. They released a new single, We Can Get It On, and a video to go with it. I love how they talked to Tom Gordon, who was their recording engineer for the album. And I guess the assumption was just out of curiosity alone, they would sell a million albums because people would want to know what they really sounded like. And I'm like, but people wouldn't know that that's what you really sounded like. Because again, it's recorded. <laughs> they don't. They don't know that. Yeah. It flopped. It's not great. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, at this point, I think it's a very difficult time to be these two cats. Mm -hmm. I think that Fabrice weathers it better than Rob. I think Rob really struggles with drugs and depression. And they this is not a one-time situation. This has been discussed, peppered in really throughout the documentary. Mm -hmm. But they don't necessarily... so their relationship becomes a little bit fractured. They're no longer brothers, according to Fab. And Rob seems to be kind of on a spiral. And Fab is able to take some time and work through his stuff, but he's able to kind of channel and work on himself. And he kind of comes back, which is really interesting. So that's a very big break between these two guys. Um, so this is, this is a difficult part to watch. It is. Um, I did enjoy seeing Fab show up on the RuPaul show and singing his own music. He has a really good voice. 100%. I think the only, 
the only thing that kept either of them out of it initially was because the lack of English, right? If they had spoken English more clearly, because you even hear him talking on the RuPaul show and he is, his English is exponentially better than it had been. And so had they been in that place when this first happened, maybe they could have sung their own songs. You know what I mean? That I think that was the biggest thing that kept them from doing it. Right. And again, I think we've dealt with people who've had accents before. I think Celine Dion. I mean, I think there's all kinds of examples of with the right kind of coaching. You know, you can. I think the problem is, is that Frank didn't want to spend the time to coach. Why would he? He can put this together. Right. It would work. Right. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it was really fun to see Fab on RuPaul. Love that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Rob spirals. Mm-hmm. He does have run-ins with the cops. He gets arrested a couple times. He goes to rehab 11 times in seven years. And I give him so much credit for continuously trying. This is a serious disease and very difficult for someone to be able to get over. And again, and tried. they are hated. They are hated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it kind of mellows over time. But they're butt of jokes. I mean, we've talked a lot on here about like what happened to um, Heaven's Gate, um, how ruthless the press was for that. Same thing with these Mm -hmm. guys, like all your late night idiots are Mm -hmm. shitting all over them. Saturday Night Live skits. I mean, it is it is ruthless. And Mm -hmm. um, to go from being so loved to being hated, hated in this way is not an experience I think most people will ever experience. It's just it's unheard of. Hopefully not. Yeah. He unfortunately does not survive. He gets out of rehab. He's staying in a hotel close to Ingrid. Ingrid does talk about the fact that they were in love but never had sex. It was this great love thing, whatever. Um, I have very little faith in anything she says it's because she loved annoying. him so much, but she's the one who got him into this situation. So whatever. I mean, it's weird though, because they do have a lot of pictures together that would sort of insinuate that they were close, but I can't rule out mm-hmm. that she was a vehicle of Frank to keep him trapped in this because she talks about his need for affection and his need for closeness Mm -hmm. without the you know Mm -hmm. sexy time or whatever but i'm like i it's unexplainable to me like what kind of relationship this was and whether it was manipulative or not of question to me well he unfortunately and this happens a lot when people get out of rehab and fall back into drugs and alcohol he had a mixture of pills and alcohol in his system and he passed away like your system can no longer handle the same level of you know intoxication that it could before and i you know you see it with a lot of artists who have passed due to drug overdose it's usually they had been clean for a period of time or something and then go right back sure. into it and, sure. and that it just is heartbreaking right especially when people fight so hard to get sober ingrid is the one who finds him in the hotel yes very difficult so carmen comes back this is rob's adopted sister at this point she's talking about the funeral was kind of overshadowed or taken over or (laughs) uh, made a pr spectacle depends on how you want to look at it uh, by frank so he when you go to a funeral, a lot of times the floral arrangements are like a saddle or a wreath or something like that. So she said, it seems that this was televised, or at least there is video of it, that family sent flowers were moved um, so that Frank's arrangements could have center 
you know, kind of center presence behind the casket and stuff like that, which is extremely annoying. And then uh, Frank did not show up. He was not there, but he does show up at the end, like very, again, to cause a sensation is really the best way I can put that. And he's like, I don't know, wearing a ball cap and like "Mm," got the sad face and it kind of steals the show, which is so frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, and he's just bereft, I'm telling you. He, they were so close, and he will never be replaced. Whatever he says. Yeah, it, it was unfortunate. But when Fab hears, of course, he's in shock. Even though he had known that he had been having some problems, it's still you, you still think they're going to make it out, right? You never believe that this will actually happen. So he was in shock. I think this is a tough one, too, because... I think everybody's had an experience where, you know, somebody's in trouble, but they won't listen to you. There's really no maintaining a relationship. You just have to let go for your own, you know, emotional safety. So that's kind of the feel that I got from this. It doesn't really lessen the grief that you feel to find out that someone that you loved and spent, you know, a lot of time with and had a, you know, a really great friendship with has lost their life. Yeah, and he lost a brother, and he also lost the only person who understood what he went through and what that was like. Yeah, it's very, very sad. What Fab is able to do, though, is he's able to start anew. He moves to Amsterdam. He evidently cuts his hair, and you don't know who he is when he cuts his hair. Uh, He does look different, which made me think of my old school, the documentary we did when we were like, well, that guy has curly hair. And so you don't, you can't even see his face is the same. So maybe we were wrong. Yeah. So he's dating a lovely lady. Her name is Tessa. And she initially doesn't know who he is until he's kind of outed by a friend of theirs. I don't think it's a a problem though, because she accepts him for who he is, which is lovely. Mm -hmm. And they again are among the most beautiful people ever. Yeah. And also creating more absolutely beautiful people. <laughs> they have three children who are stunning little people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had four. Way to but that's that going. Is it four? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could be more by now. Who knows? But yeah, it's, um, it's lovely to see that he's been able to, you know, reinvent himself. It's, it's just lovely. It is. And he he's no longer ashamed of himself. He's no longer ashamed of what they did, which is come a long way. I am sure that took a lot of time. The world was not helping that situation. And we do see at the end a concert where one Fabrice is singing, blame it on the rain with his own voice. And he sounds fucking amazing. Magical. It is so lovely. And the crowd is giving him the props he deserves. And mm-hmm. he does like an acapella bit at the end. And I imagine mm-hmm. in his heart, he's just like flipping everybody That's off. exactly what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Fuck you all. Fuck you bitches. I totally got some pipes. <laughs> and it was really fun to see him. Yeah, just coming back from a hell that I, I can't even begin to imagine. Right. It was such a good documentary, heartbreaking, but like watching the Titanic, you know what's going to happen, but I loved hearing the story behind it. I love that someone else is, is getting in there to say, 
why are we blaming these two poor people? Look at what they have suffered. They were victims of this just as much as the audience, if not more mm-hmm. victims of this situation. And there are a lot of commentators that I didn't take the time to mention, um, but there are like Rolling Stones reporters and there are DJs who were well aware of the record industry at the time who are saying like, this is a huge machine. There's no way that these two should have been blamed for this, but everybody stood back and they were more than happy to let these two take the blame for all of it. And then just some chicken shit. It's just, I can't. However, you know, we all, we all agree that pop music is an illusion to begin with. So why did this go down the way that it did other than it was engineered to do so? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Frank has engineered that the people who are up front will take the fall regardless. He specifically pulls people out of situations where they have no power to say no, no power to go against anything that he has to say. Mm -hmm. It's an abusive relationship. Yeah, It, it really is. And the money that he must have made off off of this i would they didn't talk about that but i think that that would be the indication of where the power lies in a lot of these things so at one point in the middle of the hype the peak of the hype he was worth half a billion dollars that's a lot who is your honorary Aaron for the week okay i feel like this is a slow pitch but it's fab okay and he is the king of reinvention and he's Mm -hmm. also the king of making me cry because I just loved him. I love him. Who did you choose? I chose Rob as to be a posthumous Aaron because I just feel like he worked so hard and got very little recognition and just beaten down as well, which I am thankful that that has not happened to me or you, but all he wanted was something simple. He wanted to be loved. He wanted to be seen and unfortunately, that was his downfall. He, and I felt horrible. Yeah. He struck me like a he's a big feeler. He's a big feeler. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's always available to men. And I just don't think he had the resources. And that's 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 hard. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the story could have been a lot different had they been treated fairly. And that's such a bummer. Right. And I wish that he could have... I wish that he could have lived long enough to see Fab come out on the other side of nothing else. So he could see that there was something on the other side to look forward to agreed also that it didn't matter in the long term so okay okay so what are we going to do next week erin very excited about next week's programmed entertainment we're going to do satan wants you this documentary is a prime rental and it's about an hour and 30 minutes So this one is near and dear to my heart. As we lived through Satanic Panic, I didn't have great reference for it as a child, but still. Yeah, I'm really excited. This is one that I found a long time ago, but it has just recently become available to rent and stream. And so I've been like keeping an eye on it to see as soon as we could stream it. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. I'm excited. Yeah, and it is a 2023 release. So as I know, sometimes we jump all over the place, um, but it's... It's a new documentary about an old topic. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Should be super great. It should be. And with that, thanks for joining us. And uh, have a good week, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Laters. Bye. Bye.